Hey, let's open our Bibles. Uh, I know we're going to be in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 15 tonight, and we're also going to be taking communion. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> um, and, but before we go to chapter 15 of Chronicles, I want to read 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second uh, Samuel chapter 6 really sums up uh, chapters 13 and 15 of First Chronicles. In fact, as we look at this, and let me just outline this for you uh, briefly. Um, if you look at Second Samuel chapter 6, you'll notice that verses um, 1 through 11, uh, the, the material that is there, the history that's recorded there is uh, actually recorded in uh, also First Chronicles chapter 13. So those first 11 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, you'll see the same thing. And we already looked at this actually a couple weeks ago when we were in 1 Chronicles 13. But 1 Chronicles 15 that we're going to be looking at tonight, really from verses uh, 12 uh, down through the most of it is 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And we'll see elements of even 1 Chronicles uh, 16, uh, uh, some portions of it. So this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 6, I thought we would read it in its entirety and then get right into 1 Chronicles 15 because you'll see the uh, summation of this incident where David desired, uh, remember the Ark of the Covenant had been taken captive and had been stolen from the Israelites uh, and it was actually ended up in the house of um, a gentleman by the name of Aminadab uh, in Kirjath-Jerim. And it was there for close to 100 years and maybe even a little more than 100 years. And then David comes along. He comes into his power as king, and he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Abinadab's house uh, to Zion, which is David's stronghold. And remember, Zion is just south of the modern-day Temple Mount that you and I know today. And just south of that is a little slip of land that goes out, it kind of juts out in the south um, eastern corner of the Temple Mount, and that is called Zion. And this is the place where David's palace was, and this was the place where David had erected a tent specifically to house the Ark of the Covenant so that when he brought it back from Kirjath-Jerim and brought it into Jerusalem, there would be a place, a house, if you will, for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, one thing you have to remember at this time, the remainder of the tabernacle because normally, uh, for those of you who have been here for any length of time, you know that the elements in the tabernacle were the, if you were to go into Moses' tabernacle as you go in uh, from the eastern side and you go in, the thing that you're going to see right in front of you is the uh, table of incense. And then if, as you look to your left, you're going to see the lampstand or the menorah. And as you look to your right, you're going to see the table of showbread. And right behind that altar of incense was a very uh, several layers of, uh, of curtain. And on the other side of that was only one article, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. But remember, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen from the, or from the uh, Israel by the Philistines in a war, a battle in Aphek, um, uh, many years prior to this. 
In fact, I think it's 1 Samuel chapter 4 where we learn of the, 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 the um, Ark of the Covenant being stolen. And the reason it was stolen is because the Israelites, they had put so much stock in the Ark of the Covenant, it was almost like a rabbit's foot to them. Because inside the Ark was the two tables of stone signifying the Ten Commandments. And it was the very physical representation, if you will, of God's presence with his people. So they thought, well, if we're going to win a battle, let's have the Levites carry this thing out in the middle of the battle, and then God is sure to win the battle. And God wasn't going to have anything of that because he didn't want them putting their focus on an article, but rather on him. And so the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. And so it goes through the Philistine hands for a time and then ultimately ends up at Abinadab's house for about a hundred years. And so David, if you remember, he has it in his heart to bring it. And he brings it because uh, the temple hadn't been built yet because Solomon would later build the temple in which that would reside. But until then, it was housed in a tent in Zion, just south of the Temple Mount, in a tent that David had erected for that very purpose. And so that is what has happened. And so David had a good thought. It was a good thing. And the people, obviously, of Israel were very excited about this idea of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back from uh, Kirjath-Jerim and bringing it into Zion or Jerusalem. And so let's just read uh, chapter 6 of 2 Samuel because this covers everything, literally. And then we'll get into 1 Chronicles 15 and we'll talk about it. Um, and you're going to find um, that this first attempt to bring the Ark of, of the Covenant into Jerusalem didn't end well. And we're going to find, and just a, a quick background on this, when the Philistines had the Ark, in their naivete, in their ignorance, they carried the Ark around on a, on a cart. And God allowed it because they didn't know any better, and they, they didn't touch it, they didn't look inside of it, evidently, but they carried it around on a cart, and they didn't know any better. And so God, uh, in his grace, he allowed that to happen, although he did vex them with uh, tumors and, and, and hemorrhoids and all kinds of wonderful things. Um, and many of them died uh, as a result, uh, just for their sin. <laughs> but, um, but no doubt the Israelites, seeing... And remembering that had an impact on them. And now that David wants to bring the ark from Kirjath-Jerim into Jerusalem, into Zion, in their haste, in their excitement, and I can't really blame them, to be honest with you. Have you ever been missing something for a long time? Or maybe it's, it's really important to you. And, and when you go to retrieve that thing or when you find out about it, don't you just run and, and you're getting your car and you, you know, it could be anything, you know, something that you're really excited about and you, you have a longing for it. And you just can't wait to get there. And so I don't blame Israel for what they did here and, and they, they did it in the wrong way. And, and I wonder if it's because they saw what the Philistines did. And they're thinking, if we want to get this job done, well, the ends justify the means. Let's put it on a U-Haul truck and just bring it into Zion. And God, um, and, and you know what's really interesting? And again, we've already read the first 11 verses in First Chronicles 13. But God in his grace allowed them to get away with it to a point. Did you, did you notice that? I almost wonder if God in his grace had Uzzah not reached out his hand and touched the ark. I believe that God would have allowed them in their, just in their excitement, 
He might have allowed them to bring it in on the cart. But when Uzzah reached out to stabilize it, when he wasn't even supposed to touch it himself, God says, okay, that's enough. My grace, I'm not going to go any further than this. You guys keep pushing the line, pushing the line, and there's a point where the hammer has to drop. Have you noticed that? You know, maybe you've got kids, and, and, they, and they push the line, they push the line, and they push the line, and you're like, you can go here, but go no further. And, and they will definitely go there, and they'll push it a little more just to test you. And God's like, that's a line I cannot cross. That's a line I will not allow. And God smote Uzzah for his error in touching the ark. But let's look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 6. Let's just read through the chapter. So again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Baalai Judah is... Um, yeah, I'll just leave it there. To bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And so they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Remember, it had been there. The Bible tells us that it had been there for like 20 years, and I get that, but when you actually do the math, it's actually close to 100 or more, but that's a whole other thing. So they... they uh, so, and, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they drove the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And so then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. And God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Pretty interesting. Their, their first attempt to do a, a good thing failed miserably. And now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because, the ark of God, or because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatling, fatted sheep. And then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing... A linen ephod, and so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, who also was David's wife, if you remember, she, saw, she looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And notice, and she despised him in her heart. And so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to every, everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And so all the people departed, everyone to his house. And then David returned to bless his household. <clears throat> and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And so David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the hour of her death or to the day of her death. Interesting, isn't it? And what this, um, what this, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't really get into exactly, you know, verses 12 and onward, it, it doesn't tell us how they did it, but Chronicles 15 does, and that's where we're going to pick up tonight. So go ahead and turn to First Chronicles 15, and we're going to read uh, about that. Notice what it says in verse 1. It says that David had built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. Again, this, this tent is on Zion, not on the Temple Mount. Uh, if you were to look at a, a, a picture of, of, of the Temple Mount, here is uh, Nashon's th or the, the threshing floor up here, up, up high in the mountain. And then just below that was, the, was Zion. And that's where David lived. And that's where his palace was. And in fact, they've been uncovering that over the last several years. And you can take tours of David's palace in that area where he was. It's really fascinating. But right on that same piece of land in Zion, just south of the temple, David had built a tent for one article. One article, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. The other articles that we had talked about, they were still in the old tabernacle that Moses had built hundreds of years prior, and it was uh, in Gibeon, and that is where the priests, where they were doing the sacrifices, that's where the altar, uh, uh, where they would offer sacrifices was, that's where the altar of incense was, that's where the table of showbread was, that's where the uh, lampstand or the menorah was, but this one piece, this one piece of furniture from the, the, the tabernacle, remember, had been stolen. So now it's coming back. And David is like, he wanted it to bring it into Jerusalem, the, the new capital. And ultimately, we know that in time, David would get all of the materials ready for his son because David had in his heart, remember, a desire to build a house for God. And, and God told him through the prophet Nathan, David, you can't build me a house. You're a, you're a warrior. Your hands are full of blood. You've killed many people in battle. But I like your idea and I love your heart, David. But you can't do it. 
one who's going to come from your own loins, your son, he will build me a temple. And so David's like, well, if I can't do it, then I'm going to make it everything, get everything ready for my son so that when he comes into the, when I pass on and he begins his reign, I'll give him everything. I'll have everything ready for you, Solomon. And David endeavored to do that. And so now he's going to bring this one piece into Zion. So he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And, um, and, and remember, this was a, obviously a temporary structure until the uh, temple would be built. Um, And what we're going to have to understand, again, is that those formal, those formal things of the Mosaic Law, all the offerings, they, those things, those offerings, those sacrifices, they were done in Gibeon, just about six miles north of Jerusalem. That's where they would do all of the sacrifices, and that's where the tabernacle resided at that time. And so, um, but the Ark of the Covenant now would be in David's possession on Mount Zion there. And so verse 2, then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God. Notice, has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And remember, this was the painful lesson they had learned from trying to move it with a cart before. And again, I want you to see the grace of God. And, and, And this is in the Old Testament, folks. You know, many people think that God, you know, he has the, the standard of laws, and he does. And, and sin is sin, and God told them exactly what to do, and they didn't do it. But I want you to not fail to see the grace of God, even when they were moving it. They were getting away with it, and God was, in his grace, just, I think he was holding his breath. <laughs> Go on. I can go that far, guys, but you mess up one more time, you know, and because you, you're already transgressing the way I want you to do things. But even in that, God was gracious. I, I want, don't want you to miss that, because people have a funny way of looking at God in the Old Testament. They just see him as this angry God who just wants to squash people. And as I begin to study more of the Old Testament, the more I realize I see grace all over the place in the Old Testament, God's dealings with his people. So verse 3, David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And we have to remember this was a national event. It was a huge gathering. The ark of the covenant was the most reverent piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And it represented, like I said before, the very presence of God with his people. And inside of it would carry the Ten Commandments. So verse 4, it says, Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites, of the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief, and 120 of his brethren, of the sons of Merari, Merari uh, Asahiah, Asahiah the chief, and 220 of his brethren, of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief, and 130 of his brethren, of the sons of Elizaphan. Now, verses 8, 9, and 10 list these, uh, the sons of Elizaphan, the sons of Hebron, and the sons of Uziel. And these are all sub-clans, if you will, of the, uh, the, clan, the, 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 um, the family group of Kohath. And, and these were the guys who were supposed to be moving and touching, or not touching the ark, but uh, 
responsible for taking care of the ark and all of its um, items in the tabernacle as well. So of the sons of Eliasaphan, uh, Shemaiah the chief and 200 of his brethren. Of the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief and 80 of his brethren. Of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab the chief and 112 of his brethren. So it's a total of 862 men that are going to help them in this procession and bring this ark from, or from um, uh, the, the place where uh, it, it had been. And so verse 11, Then David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asaiah, and Joel, and Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. So you might want to underline this phrase, sanctify yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 8. We're going to look at verse uh, 5 through 15. So the Levites, they weren't just to approach God in any way they chose, and when they were to touch the ark and any of those holy instruments, they were to sanctify themselves. And and the ark of the covenant was probably the most holy of all of them. And so the priests were to go through a process of not only cleansing their bodies, but also uh, atoning for their sin, because every one of them were sinners. Uh, we, we were born with a sin nature, right? Every one of us, including the Levites. Even though they were chosen by God and, and they were uh, amazing men with a great responsibility, they were still born with a sin nature. So Numbers chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Notice what this process that the, the priests had to go through before they would even touch, before they would even bring the ark into uh, Zion. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. So there's what it was all about. And thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purification on them and let them shave all their body and let them wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. And then let them take a young bull with its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil and you shall take another young bull as a sin offering And you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall gather together the whole congregation of the children of Israel. So you shall bring the Levites before the Lord. And the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering, like a wave offering, because you can't pick up those guys and and wave them, okay? So the idea was to, uh, in a sense, um, uh, lay their hands on the... uh, and, and um, let me back up here. Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. And then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls and you shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And you shall stand the Levites before Aaron and his sons and then offer them like a wave offering to the Lord and thus you shall separate. And see, that's what sanctification is. It's separation. 
And they were to be separate, not only from the sins that they had committed, to be washed and for that sin of all of them to be atoned, but they had to actually had to go through a process of physically cleaning themselves, not only their bodies, but their clothing, and to approach a holy God. And that was what God had told them to do. And he goes on and he says, And you shall stand the Levites before Aaron and his sons, and then offer them like a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine, God says. And after that, the Levites shall go into service the tabernacle of meeting. So you shall cleanse them and offer them like a wave offering. So does that make sense? In order for them to, before they did this act of bringing the ark, and even though they were going to be holding the ark with poles on their shoulders and bearing the ark from Obed-Edom's house into Zion, they were to go through all of this, this process of sanctification, And God is serious, isn't he, about sanctification? In fact, as believers, once you have given your heart to Christ, your life of sanctification begins. The moment you give your heart to Christ, you are being sanctified. You are being conformed to the image of Jesus every single day. And and, and the thing that we have to understand is from God's perspective, once you are born again and are in Christ, you are eternally saved. You're eternally saved. But we know that as we walk in this world, as we walk in the world, we pick up defilement. We are defiled, and even our old nature, if we're not careful, will come up and rear its head. And what does the Bible tell us to do with the old nature? To crucify it. We have to crucify it. We can't play games with it, right? And so we need to also sanctify ourselves, but we sanctify ourselves based on what Christ has already done. He's, he even gives us, did you know this, that the Spirit of God within you, if you're a child of God, he even gives you the strength to withstand and to turn away from sin. Before I had the Spirit of God in me, I went, I went to sinful things like a magnet. There was a, like a piece of metal to, to a magnet. I was just uh, completely given over to everything vile and evil. Can anybody relate to that? It's true. But now, with the Spirit of God in me, now I have the very Spirit of God dwelling in me, giving me the grace, giving me the strength to resist sin. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means that I've I've been forgiven, number one, and and now I have an advocate dwelling right inside me, the very Spirit of God, the, the paraclete, the comforter, to give me the strength to turn away from things and to, to my eyes finally being open to this real, very real battle that we see going on all around us. I don't know about you, but after becoming saved and being born again, I was aware of a spiritual battle unlike any other time in my life. I wasn't even aware that there was a battle. But now, oh my goodness, I'm very much aware of the battle. Are you aware of the battle? You're living through it right now. There's a spiritual battle. I mean, even before all the nonsense that's happening in our country and our government and everything else, there was a spiritual battle always going on. But let me tell you, it's been ratcheted up several fold over the last three or four years. And we're being conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians verse four, or chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says to them, this is the will of God your sanctification. It's, it's God's will that you are sanctified. And just as the Levites, even in the Old Testament, they had to be sanctified by going through a ritual 
where you and I, if we have Christ in us, we are already clean. But then every day as we go and as we make mistakes and of judgment and character and things that we say or may do that don't add up, then we just confess those things. And then what is the promise in the Bible? He's faithful and just to forgive us if we confess it. And he'll wash us clean of those things. But notice in verse 13 now, getting back to our text, it says, For because, and here's David speaking to the Levites, he says, For because you, underline that word you, <laughs> he says, because, For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. And when did he break out against them? Well, it was their first attempt. When Ahio or Uzzah put his hand on the ark and he struck him dead. That was what he's talking about here. And, and so, and notice, because we, underline the word we, because these two words, you and we, are very important because he does hold them accountable. Because you did not do it the first time, guys. But then David comes around and he says, because we did not consult him, God, about the proper order. Notice that although David held the, the Levites responsible, he also included himself in the fact that they did not consult the Lord about the proper order. And why is that? Well, they were excited. Does anybody get excited? <laughs> Do you remember that moment of excitement? And I think when we're real young, we, we tend to have these thrushes of excitement where it just becomes so exciting, we, we, we're not even mature enough to control ourselves. And I think it was a lot like this. They were so excited that they just ran headlong into whatever, to get that ark into Jerusalem. Just want to get it in there. And, um, but notice, because we did not consider, we did not consult God, and the proper order was for the Levites to bear the ark on their shoulders. And it tells us that in Exodus 25. And let me just read it to you. I, I know you've seen this before, but maybe by reading it, um, it's a very short passage, uh, Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10. And this is what they were supposed to have done the first time. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold all around. And you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be in one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. Notice that the ark may be carried by them. That was what God had said. And the poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. They were to stay in there the whole time. Now, I love this about David because he says, and we did not consult. Because the mark of a good leader is one who admits fault. One who admits fault and takes responsibility for their actions. David was one of these men. He knew he wasn't perfect, and when he made a mistake, he fessed up to it. He didn't try to. Um, he didn't try for long to hide it. I mean, the thing with Bathsheba, he probably for a year he wrestled with it before he finally came clean. He was discovered. But another thing to to consider with this verse is, you know, they had saw the Philistines doing this, and so it was very common and. Or not common, but they, they saw it and they thought they could get away with it. But um, 
they didn't get away with it. And they tried it because they were excited. You know, one of the things that's really can be volatile is a group of people in a religious fervor. And when, usually when you get some, a group of people in a religious fervor, it can be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. And at that time, it was, uh, they were in a very religious fervor. They were really excited. But see, this is where we often get into trouble. <laughs> we often uh, don't stop and think before we do something. Have you ever been guilty of that? You're so excited, you just don't stop to think. You don't stop to pray. Even in our zeal, we need to rethink things. We need to think things through. We need to pray things through before we rush into action. And see, this is where the devil loves to make us feel rushed to do things. If you feel rushed to do anything, I mean, unless you're in, the, in traffic and there's a car coming at you and you've got to get out of the road, well, by all means, rush and get out of the way before you get squashed by the car. But I'm talking about events in life. You know, people will, uh, the devil loves to get the Christian and say, you've got to do it now, man, this is it. If you don't do it now, you're going to lose this opportunity forever. And, and it forces you to not even be able to have an opportunity to think. And somebody, and even a well-meaning Christian will come and say, you've got to do it now, man, this is it. You know? and, 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 then you, and so many people have run headlong into a, into a hasty decision, only realize it was a setup from hell. It was a setup from hell, and you find yourself in, in a lot of pain and agony because of the decision that you made feeling rushed. And the devil loves to get rushed people. Oh, you got to do it now. If you don't do it now, you'll never get this opportunity again. It's now or never. It's now or never. You know, it, that's what the devil wants to do. But don't do it. And that's what they did. They were so excited. Got to do it now. The devil's going, oh, yes, you got to do it now. In fact, I'll even, get, I'll even provide the transportation. So what's the moral of the story? Don't be in a hurry. Be careful about things that make you feel like you've got to do it right now. The more often we can stop and think and pray about something and then act after thinking about it, but more importantly, after praying about it. So verse 14, so the Levites sanctified themselves. They did. They set themselves apart, just like God wants to set us apart. He sanctified them. They sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according, notice, to the word of the Lord. It's important that we do things according to the word of the Lord. Don't you agree? Very important. Make decisions and be purposeful in your actions based upon the revealed will of God. Now as we go into verse 16 through 24, these, this, uh, this body of verses, 16 through 24, is really additional information than what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6. In fact, David is listing in these verses Levites who would offer worship in song during this procession from Obed-Edom's house to Zion, where the ark would ultimately sit uh, until the, the temple would be built. And these would be the singers, the string players, and the percussionists. And one of the things that I find really interesting is prior to David, there really wasn't a service of music. 
other than the, the trumpets going out in front of the ark, like in, in Jericho, you know, uh, other than that, there was really no music in the Mosaic law. It wasn't until David came along, and all of a sudden, he's like, uh, he, he made instruments. He invented musical instruments, and he created them. And now, from this point onward, in the life of Israel, you're going to see that they are going to uh, in, include, in, include with the Mosaic worship, meaning the sacrifices and the offerings, they were also going to include music service. Like what we did tonight. It's in addition to the service. You know, it's, it's worship. And they would worship in song. And, it, and from then on, it would become part of their life forevermore. And I think God was, was fine with that. He was... There's nothing greater than to see people rejoicing in their God. To rejoice in all that he's done. A, a thankful people rejoice. They're happy. And this bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem was one of the greatest moments in Israel's history. So this was a very big deal. And one of the things that's true about the Jews is that when they worship, they are not timid. And their joy and their exuberance uh, could stand to rub off on me. And rub off on us. I remember seeing a bar mitzvah uh, procession. I think it was in 2011. We were in Israel and we were in the old city and we were coming out from uh, right to the plaza there, uh, right there by the Western Wall. And there was a procession of a bu- the, the entire family, and they got huge families, and they got this young boy who just turned 13, and he's celebrating his bar mitzvah, or he's now a, a son of the law, basically. And, and so now it's this huge event. They've got him on their shoulders, and they're marching him through these little arrow, you know, narrow ways in, in the old city, and they're singing, and they're dancing, and I can't understand anything they're saying, but there was such a joy and an exuberance. And I, I remember one time, I, I was like, we were right next to it, and they were walking right by us, and they were, everyone was singing, and there was joy, and the kids were laughing and throwing you know, things, and it was just like, wow. It totally blew me away, and I was so convicted. And I know it's just a, a bar mitzvah, but I thought to myself what David, as we read, that he did as he danced before the Lord with all of his might. And he did that, and he could care less about what anybody thought of him. He could care less even how he looked. And I thought to myself, man, I want, to, I want more of that. I don't want to be inhibited. But I want to do it biblically. And yet they were rejoicing in God, and God was pleased with it. Yes, they were even dancing. In Psalm 150, it says this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the sound of, with a lute and the harp. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath play, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amazing. Verse 17, so the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and this man was the grandson of Samuel the prophet, just so you know, Heman. 
And of his brethren, Asaph, the sons of Berechiah, and of their brethren, the sons of Merari, Ethan, the son of Cushai, and with them their brethren of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben, Jaaziel, Shemaramoth, uh, Jehiel, Unai, Eliab, Benaiah, Maasiah, Mattathiah, Eliphalet, Miknei, Obed-Edom, and Jael, the gatekeepers. Now, this Obed-Edom that appears here evidently is not the same Obed-Edom whose house the ark was placed in for three months. This man was a Levite, a gatekeeper, and actually a harpist, according to what this chapter tells us. And there's about four individuals in Scripture that are named um, Obed-Edom. But notice verse 19, the singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound the cymbals of bronze. Zechariah, Aziel, Shemaramoth, uh, uh, Jehiel, Unai, Eliab, Maasiah, and Benaiah with strings according to Alamoth. Mattathiah, Eliphalet, Miknei, Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azaziah to direct with harps on the shimoneth or upon the octave. And so all of these things, and this is a huge band and they're all worshiping the Lord. Chenaniah, a leader of the Levites, was instructor in charge of the music because he was skillful. Notice that, that he was skillful. You know, everybody should worship the Lord, but God has raised up certain individuals who have skills to do that. And uh, it's important to, to be able to, especially if you're leading, um, to have some kind of baseline skill at least, so that you actually know how you have a command of your instrument, whether it's an instrument or whether it's your voice, whatever it may be, it's important to do that. And this man was uh, instructor in charge of the music, this man by Chenaniah, because he was skillful. And Berechiah and Elkanah were doorkeepers for the ark. And Shebaniah, Joshaphat, Nethanel, Amasiah, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Eleazar, the priests, were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God, and Obed-Edom and Jehiah, doorkeepers for the ark. Now, verses 25 through 29 are recorded for us also in 2 Samuel. We read this earlier. Notice, so David, the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And it was so when God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, and all, uh, as were all the Levites who bore the Ark, the singers. And Chenaniah, the music master, notice, with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Interesting. David, even though he was from the line of Judah, and he wasn't a priest, he couldn't be a priest because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, he wore the garments of a priest during this procession, but he did not overstep his role. He didn't touch anything. He didn't do any of the roles. He was just there leading the charge, and he was so happy to do so. You know, I would love, honestly, I hope when we get to heaven that the Lord will rewind the, the tape, if you will, and show us on a big screen and say, I want to show you what actually happened. I want you to see the look on David's face. Let's zoom in that. Hey, can you zoom in on David's face? And, you know, and, and just to see the joy in his face as he's twirling and whirling and just so blown in worship. Look at that guy. He was doing it for me. <laughs> he was doing it for me. 
Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps. Very reminiscent of Matthew 21. Remember what happened in Matthew 21? Jesus, uh, fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel in, in his, uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he comes in riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling those scriptures of Daniel chapter 9 and Zechariah. When the king would come in, and they should have recognized him, and had they done it, had they received Christ as the Messiah, it, the, the, the kingdom of God would have been ushered in right then, but they rejected him. Only a handful of people really understood what was happening, but the vast majority rejected him. They didn't understand what was happening. So verse 29, and it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw... that Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window, and there she sees King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. And I love this, and, and before we take communion, I, I just, this is such a, a sweet thing here, and even though it's a very difficult passage here, because you're looking at the hearts of two different people, two different people governed by two different spirits. David just being completely blown out by God and Michal totally unplussed of anything about God. And the total abandonment of self by David here is remarkable to me. He's totally gone. He's not aware of himself at all. It's not even about himself. He, he is just so caught up in this moment. And, and this was huge for them. I mean, other than Jesus riding in on the temple, the only other uh, thing I can think of uh, in Israel's ancient history that was as, as significant was when they, the temple was dedicated after Solomon had built it. I mean, other than that, I mean, this was an, a significant thing. And so David understands this, and he is totally blown away. He put everything on the line. He didn't care what people thought, what people said. And how many of us have had moments or a moment like this. I wish I could say there was a lot for me. There have been times where I've been so excited. And I think in private, <laughs> I've done this more than in public by any means. But just giving thanks to God, even crying, and just rejoicing, you know. And sometimes it's best to just do it alone. Nobody's going to judge you. You don't have to worry about anything. You can just go out in the middle of a field somewhere and just rejoice something. But she despised him in her heart. When she saw him, when she saw David whirling and playing music, it just got her goat. She's like, oh, I hate that guy. In Psalm 40, there's a wonderful verse. Let me read it to you. It's in verse 3 of Psalm 40. It says, it's a psalm of David. He says, he has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. And then he says something really remarkable. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Many will see it. He has put a new song in my mouth. A song is supposed to be something that's heard. But he's saying, but many will see it 
and will fear. They will, they will have a reverence for God when they see the worship. It's not just something that we hear. It's something that we can see as well. Because what is really in our heart, eventually it manifests itself out in the physical. And if we really love Christ, we're going to exalt Christ. We're really going to love him. We're going to do things that please him. And it's going to show itself in our life. And not everybody's going to like it. Even some in the church may not like it. So often we think that singing and music, that's worship. But the greatest worship is that which involves sacrifice, remember. Sacrifice. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. He endured the shame, as it tells us in Hebrews. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it wasn't just the suffering on the cross, but consider what he went through in Gethsemane as he was considering just hours from that he would be taken wrongfully and ultimately crucified the next day. As he stood there, as he knelt there in Gethsemane, the, the, the pressure, the spiritual pressure and the reality of what was happening was so incredibly intense that the Bible says that he sweat as it were great drops of blood. And maybe the vessels in his capillaries did break out of the pressure and that's happened. There's a medical condition where that happens and people will, it'll come, the blood will come out of your pores. Maybe that happened, but he was under great duress. So the greatest sacrifice of all time, the greatest worship offering of all time happened at the cross. And what about the widow? Remember the widow? Another example of worship. It's recorded for us in Luke 21 where uh, his disciples were looking at all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and with their long robes and the pomp and circumstance, they would walk over to the treasury and you know, drop in a couple hundred dollar bills you know, and everyone's going, wow, these guys are amazing. Look at them worship. And then this elderly woman comes by and she just had two mites. They, they weren't even worth much. It would be like a, a nickel for us or maybe pennies or even less, a value. And she puts in that and Jesus said, hey, do you see that? And they're like, what? She didn't drop in a $100 bill. It was just a couple of coins. And he's like, yeah, but that woman out of her poverty, she put in all that she had. And these guys, they have tremendous loads of cash and they put it in there and everyone's fawning over them, but they didn't worship at all. They might as well have kept their money. Ah, but this woman, it was a sacrifice. He, and he, he made sure that she was, her act was noticed to his disciples. That is worship. So what if, you know, some rich man, you know, ties to the church 10 grand or 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, 500,000, whatever it is, you know, if he's got billions, it's like a drop in the bucket to him. I mean, again, don't get me wrong. I mean, it, that's all fine and good if they want to do that. But if their hearts aren't right, they'll think that they're doing something when really they're doing nothing. But true worship brings out the best, and we'll, we'll take communion after this. Notice, true worship will bring out the best, and it'll also bring out the worst in people. And the best example is what's recorded for us in Matthew 26. A good example, I believe, and let me just read it to you. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 6, notice, it says that when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. This was nard, and it was very expensive. It was like a year's wage was how much this cost. 
and she poured it on Jesus' head as he sat at the table. But one of his disciples saw it, and actually, John's gospel tells us who it was that had the problem with it. Do you know his name? Judas. John chapter 12, verse 4. Judas says, he got indignant and says, Why was this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you don't have with you always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial for her or to her. Do you see what happened there? The worship of this woman brought out the best in her and it brought out the worst in Judas. And he saw it, like Psalm 40, verse 3. Many shall see it. And there were many in that room going, I've, wow, <laughs> extravagant worship. And see, that's the kind of worship that the Lord loves. And so worship is not just something we hear. It's something that we see. It, it has action to it. It's sort of like love. It's a lot like love. You know, I can say that I love my wife but until I show actions that back that up, it's just words, right? The, the old phrase, talk is cheap. I can tell somebody that I love them, but if I don't hang out with them, I'm proving that I really don't love them. I, if I don't serve them, if I don't do something to help them, to bless them, I, I'm showing that it's just all talk. And there's a lot of talk in the world. And there's a lot of talk in the church. But God wants to make us worshipers. He wants to make us lovers of himself. And when we truly love him, we're so willing to do anything for him. And see, that is what David had. And David was, he worshipped with reckless abandon. And boy, did it frost her. And God struck her. She couldn't have children. That sounds kind of cruel. But her heart was so, uh, up to this point, God knew exactly where Michal's heart was. And it brought out the best in David. And it brought out the worst in Macau. You know, as we take communion, I'm, I'm going to move over here in just a second. And I want to encourage you that as we take communion, to, to just think about that. You know, think about the offering that is before us. And, and in Jesus, obviously... Made, the, made himself an offering for sin on our behalf, in our place, so that we would not die eternally and, and, and die forever, but we would have an assurance of our salvation because of the, the efficacy, because of how effective the blood of the Son of God is. There was no longer any, there's no longer any other offering that was necessary. And so as we take the bread and the cup tonight, we are basically coming into agreement that that sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus was once and for all good enough and he did that once and for all. And when we take those elements in, we take them down into us, we are coming into agreement with it. And I, I would just pray that as we do that, just say, Lord, as I'm taking these elements, would you just cleanse me as you did those, as those priests sanctified themselves. Lord, You've sanctified me, but you're also sanctifying me. Does that make sense? 
In God's sight, he has sanctified you, but we are also being sanctified. And it's a process. Until the moment he comes for us in the rapture or until we die of natural causes, we are going through this process of sanctification. So as we take communion, just think of those things and say, Lord, sanctify me. Help me to deny myself. And Lord, forgive me for any sin that I, that I, that I, this week that I've been carrying around, maybe something today even, and just confess it before him and be refreshed and be washed and cleansed like those Levites. Because as you believe in Christ and you confess those things, the promise is true, folks. The promise is true. Never forget the promise. If he If we confess, then he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Sounds good. Hold the elements and we'll take them together, okay? Lord, we take these tokens, Lord, in just a simple, in a simple way, Lord, we we know that they're symbols of what you have done and lord as we take them down into the center of our being lord may it be true now more than ever lord that it was it was you who did that for us and lord may we come to recognize it even more and more and may we live lives lord lord just continually being sanctified and separated from this world and and so lord um Bless us as we take these tokens in Jesus' name. Amen. I love what Jesus said to his disciples that night. As he took communion for the first time, and we call it communion, the disciples didn't know what it was because it wasn't part of the, uh, the Passover meal, something new that Jesus did. But I love what Jesus said. He says, I, I've longed to have this with you, to take this with you. His body being broken, his blood being spilled on our behalf. But I won't do it again, guys, until the kingdom. The next time that we see Jesus, after the rapture of the church or The Bible says that there's a time when the church is raptured that we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that time, Jesus will take of the bread and the cup again for the first time, we believe, from that moment till that moment. And we will all be there. Can you imagine the significance and the the joy that will bring? is to consider all that he's done. And folks, these are things that we get, we get to look forward to, and they're real. And I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? And um, I'm looking forward to that marriage supper. The bride of Christ, united with the, with the groom, our Savior Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this time together tonight, and pray that you bless us as we go from here. Thank you for the reminder of what these tokens mean and, um, and even what they continue to mean in our lives. Be glorified in, our, in, our, in and through us tonight and tomorrow and get us all home safely. And Bless my friends here tonight, Lord. Heal their hearts. Heal their bodies where necessary. Heal us, Lord, in every possible way. Remove anxiety. Remove fear. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.